You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. I remember this one graduation ceremony at my college. They were giving out awards to alumni, and it was this very imposing parade of people who had done groundbreaking research on subatomic particles or founded rapid-response malaria clinics in remote jungles. It was very intimidating. But then, finally, after three or four people like that, this novelist from the class of 1996 stepped up to the podium to accept his award. And he was standing there, with sloped shoulders and a ratty sport coat, bent eyeglasses. He had recently published a novel that was loosely based on his family and his time at the college. And this very distinguished magazine, like the most distinguished magazine, exactly the one you're thinking of when I say distinguished magazine, they had gotten it in their heads that this novelist would make a good journalist. And so they had come to him, and they'd asked if he wanted to go to Chicago to cover a motorcycle race. And being a writer and a college graduate, he was smart enough to know that he should not turn down a paying gig, even though, as he explained to us, he was in no way a journalist, and he didn't have the faintest interest in motorcycle racing or how to even begin reporting a story like that. So, he told us, the magazine flew him to Chicago, they put him up in a hotel, and when he got there, he realized he was too scared to go out to this dusty racetrack and interview a bunch of bikers. So he spent the entire weekend hiding in the hotel room watching TV and writing in his journal about what a failure he was. And when he got back to New York, he went to see his editor, and the editor said, so what do you have for me? And he said, nothing. And the editor said, what? And he said, nothing. I was too scared to talk to anyone. Now, this editor would have been well within his rights to tell the writer to go pound sand. But that's not what happened. The editor said, look, I get it. But I need that story. I'm sending you back again this weekend. Please do your job this time. So the next weekend, the writer got back on the plane, checked into the same hotel, and was still too scared to do any interviews. He came back to New York, and he ended up writing this piece about feeling so intimidated by the very idea of bikers that he couldn't even bring himself to talk to them. And the magazine published it, and it was a huge hit. The editor was thrilled, and the writer got a second book deal. The lesson in all this, the rumpled writer told the crowd of 20-somethings, is to make friends with the person you are right now, because you're not going to change. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And at the time I heard that story, I remember feeling this wave of relief. Like, whoa, maybe the person I already am really is enough to be worth something in this world. Not that I didn't still want to evolve in terms of my values and my skills and whatnot. But as a proud member of the international folkhood of imposter syndrome patients, the idea of being enough just the way I was felt like a revelation. A decade or two later, I'm sad to say I'm still working on believing that, but that's a conversation for my therapist and I later this afternoon. 
The reason I wanted to tell you that story before today's episode is because lately I've been thinking about the question of why we expect such radical change from ourselves. Why we're so convinced that we're always on the brink of bursting from our chrysalis, emerging as a fitter, happier, more productive version of ourselves. And some of that is the cultural pressure of advertising and hucksterism, probably. But I think it starts long before we see our first Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercial or fork over our first 10 grand for a meditation retreat in Ojai. I think it starts with our parents. Because no matter how much we love them, there comes a time when we wish they could be different people than they are. We wish they were more engaged, more sensitive, more fashionable, less uptight, less cheesy, less alcoholic. We convince ourselves that it would be so easy for them to change, and it's unfathomable to us that they won't. If we're lucky, I think, eventually we realize that our parents aren't ever going to metamorphose into these perfect beings we wish they could be. But what can change is our ability to recognize them in their own skin. And on the show today, you're going to hear two stories about that. One from someone who realizes it a little too late, and another from someone who figures it out just in the nick of time. That's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. It must have been the dead middle of summer 2005 when the doorbell rang. It must have been the dead middle because I hadn't realized that the summer had started, and I had no idea that it was just about to end. In through the entryway dotted with authentic African masks, which I'm given to believe were fashionable entryway decorations in the 1970s, strolled Arnold and Phyllis Rowe. They were carrying a bottle of white wine. Like my parents, Arnold and Phyllis changed their surname after being married for some time. My parents made the move from Janowitz to Jordan, and Arnold and Phyllis leapt from Rojakovic to Rowe. While my parents were pleased with their surname shuffle, Arnold and Phyllis seemed to be made only more nervous by the fact that they'd upended the natural order of their own identities. They were nervous to begin with. Phyllis had that quivering vocal whine which conjures up memories of a Sunday school teacher and Arnold seemed as though he was always bracing for a meteor to strike right dab in the center of Riverside, California. They probably should have just left their name the way it was. With an uncharacteristic flourish, my father swept the bottle of wine from Phyllis's unsteady embrace and seemed to have it corked by the time he said, Welcome. Sure, the Rojakovics, or Rose, were our neighbors, but this was the first time in 20 years that my father had invited them over. It was also the first time since the funeral that they'd been inside the house without my mother present. Their daughter, Amy, and I used to ride bikes around the cul-de-sac when I was little. I have a vague memory of Amy having a serious injury when she was about 11 years old, but the dominant memory is of us just chasing each other around in circles on our Schwinn's. 
Back then, I was known as a smart kid. Not a nerd, really, just the sort of kid that no one wants to be around because he knows that he's smarter than you and your kid because his mother told him so. And because he just destroyed you in that uninstigated debate about Nikola Tesla's place in the scientific pantheon. I was the kid that would proudly parade around the supermarket announcing my upcoming candidacy for president. As soon as I turned 35, which my research told me was the requisite age for me to assume my rightful post, I would be the president of the United States. This must have been the most annoying fucking thing in the world to hear from a 4 to 13 year old, but, but I didn't care. And neither did my mother. She beamed. She loved shit like that. Anything that set me apart as superior was worn like a charm on her Bradford bracelet. Jingle, jingle. At age 11, my plan was to be a child star on television. Something like you can't do that on television, but, but definitely cooler. And I would use my millions to start running campaign ads 20 years before I ran for president. The ads would air starring a 15-year-old Bradford Jordan. I would approach the camera and say, Hi, I'm Bradford Jordan. Get to know this face. In 20 years, I will be running for president. I also imagined a print campaign. Buses, benches, skywriting. Every year, I would run the same campaign just as a year-older version of myself. America would watch me go through puberty, college, and ultimately vote me into office. The whole thing was genius. My dad ushered the rose out into the backyard. We never had people in the backyard. He turned on the fountain. He poured the wine. He engaged the neighbors in conversation. Arnold looked up a lot. I, I think he was probably keeping a lookout for ominous cloud formations which might portend the invasion of an alien rock into our atmosphere. And Phyllis just did most of the talking. O only it wasn't really talking. It was yammering, and we were all just yammering at each other. In the dead middle of the summer of 2005, I was living at home with my father, just the two of us, in our family's house. It had been four years since someone randomly carjacked and shot my mother twice in the heart, killing her instantly. We were still deep in the process of recovery, but there we were. Assembled in the backyard were two bachelors, a nervous wreck, and a goof. Yammering. Then, out of the low mumble and about two and a half glasses of wine in, Dad's bass voice erupted above the rest. Brad? Well, who knows? He'll probably be president someday. I looked at my father like he was crazy. First of all, that was Mom's line, and second of all, no, I wouldn't. I'd spent my senior year of college smoking enough weed, having enough sex with random people, and committing enough petty theft to fill a decade's worth of political attack ads, but that was hardly the point. The point was, I, I didn't want to be president. I didn't want to be in politics. People just seemed to hate each other in politics. There was no way Dad could have known this, of course. Sitting out there in the backyard of the house he'd bought with my mother way back when African masks were considered a welcoming decoration in suburban California, he was doing his best to channel Mom. He was trying to be the one that beamed for me in that jingle-jingle kind of way that only Mom could. And if he hadn't been so wildly off base, he'd, he'd have been doing a hell of a job. Phyllis and Arnold were certainly convinced. They looked at me with that, ooh, oh, this kid could really be something. And, and he probably is. You know, that look that I'd cherished for so long. Only this time, 
that look made me feel dirty. I've had a lot of phone conversations with my father over the years. He's a great dad and he listens really well. In a lot of these conversations, I would lament the fact that I felt like I was pretending to be two people at once. I'd sometimes cry on the phone and tell him that I didn't want to wear a mask, that I felt like it alienated me from truly connecting with people. For a good chunk of my life, I was honestly afraid that I would never be honest. I was disproportionately concerned with being impressive, and I knew it. My dad would counsel me compassionately and tell me that it was all part of growing up, that personal congruity was an admirable struggle to undertake. I would nod on the other end of the phone, whether I was in England or New York or Ecuador or California, and thank him. Somehow, Dad always seemed to be congruous. Warm evening in the dead summer in Riverside, however, with Phyllis quaking on the rocking bench and Arnold eyeing his wine like it was a foreign elixir, Dad was incongruous. Dad was trying to be Mom and Dad at the same time, and it felt fucking weird. If it had just been Dad, I, I would have told him that I don't want to be president. I would have told him that if I had a million dollars, I wouldn't blow it on an ad campaign to alert America to my burgeoning greatness. I would have told him that I just wanted to be a guy who could amble onto a stage or into a classroom once in a while and laugh hard at the beauty of the world. But I couldn't do that. Not right then, because, because it wasn't just Dad. It was Mom-Dad. Dad-Mom! A bizarre, otherworldly combination of memory, fear, and love. Arnold and Phyllis probably think I'm going to be president, but I doubt it will bother them much if I'm not. Sitting in their quiet living room 20 yards from the living room that I used to do crosswords with my mother in, I hope they can find solace in the simple fact that they will probably die before an asteroid hits the Earth. In the summer since 2005, Dad and I have talked about that moment and how strange it felt to both of us. He's a great dad, and he listens well. At this moment... Right now, the three of us are all ourselves. I'm me, he's dad, and mom is mom, and none of us are president. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment.
1969, I walked into my first pool hall. My dad had just gotten this great job with NASA to work on the Apollo project because he can fix anything electronic. I know this because in Florida, in our garage, are so many TV sets that are broken that he is going to repair as soon as the parts come in. And he's not charging the neighbors any money for it except for the part because that's my dad. He has this great gift and he constantly wants to share it with the world. And as good as my dad is at fixing things, so good that he's working on the Apollo project for NASA, he is better at pool. I know this because when I walk in that bar, I see him. He looks just like Paul Newman in The Hustler. Only he's not conning people out of their money. He tells them right up front, if you put your money on the table, if you don't run the table, I will and I will take your money. He never played down to anybody. I know this because whenever he would teach me the game, I never beat him. I wanted to. My dad always had a drink in his hand and always a cigarette. And when he drank, he became more like Michael Jordan. He'd be mean, he'd be cutting, he'd get in your head. He'd say things that would make you feel sad or bad while you were playing to beat you. So I vowed never to have a drink, never to smoke. But I kept trying to beat my dad at pool. And the reason was because when my dad wasn't working and when my dad wasn't fixing the TVs in the garage, he was drinking and smoking at the pool hall. And if I wanted to see him, that's where I had to go because he was never at my baseball games or my soccer games or my swim meets. And I just wanted to be better than him. And by the time I went away to college, I did not want to come back. So I didn't. And three years after leaving home and not paying attention to anything there, I found out my dad was living in Dallas and my mom was still living in Houston and they were on the verge of splitting when he called me drunk one night. He was crying. He was talking about how he was a bad father, just like that, that guy in the cat's cradle, the one who never made time for his son. And my dad was begging me to come up that coming weekend to spend it with him. I didn't want to be like the guy in the song, the son who never made time for the dad. So I agreed and I drove up to Dallas. And when I got to Dallas, we went and ate and he told me some stories and I told him how school was. And then we went to a bar and we started playing pool. And very soon after playing pool, I realized how badly I play it. And I watched my dad beat me over and over again. And I just, all that resentment and anger and frustration, instead of fixing anything, this was just making it worse. After watching my dad play for six hours against people I couldn't afford to play against, watching them just give him their money, watching him hurt them with his words and get in their head, I drove him home because he was too drunk to do it himself. And the next morning, 
We went out for breakfast, and he asked me, what time is the Cowboys game? Because it's Sunday. And I'm thinking, well, that'll be fun. We'll go back to his place, and we'll watch the game. And I said, noon, Dad. This is great. I'm like, why don't we watch it at your place? He goes, oh, I don't have a TV. Let's go to the pool hall. I rack the table. He breaks. And nothing falls. And then I sink the next seven balls in a row. And I am looking at the eight ball. And for the first time in my life, I am going to beat my dad at pool. And he had already yelled at the waitress for a bourbon and Coke, but she couldn't give him one because it was 1145. And even though there was no money and it was Sunday morning in this bar and there was nobody watching, I had this ridiculous sense of pride. A sense of pride I never thought I'd have in a bar with my dad. It wasn't going to fix our relationship, but it was going to make me feel good to look at him after I beat him. And as I hit the eight into the pocket, I heard the cowboy game start. And as I stared at the ball and the table, realizing I had just won for the first time in my life, I looked over at my dad and he wasn't there. He had gone to hunt down the waitress to get that bourbon and coke. Over the next 35 years of my life, my dad and I would talk on the phone or see each other at family gatherings. Until this year, when my sister Carol asked me to go visit him in Albuquerque, he had lost the woman he was living with. She had died. He had lost sight in his left eye, and he was losing sight in his right. Too much drinking and smoking that he had swore he had given up. And I agreed. I I drove out to Albuquerque. We went out to eat. And the next thing I know, we were in a pool hall. And it's league night. And my dad is just kicking my ass at pool. He can't remember if he's solids or stripes every single time he shoots. He's using the table to hold him up. He's shuffling his feet and he can barely fucking see. He can't find the chalk on the table and he is kicking my ass. So much so that other people are watching him. With all these great players in there, the owner of the bar is watching my dad. And I am watching the owner watch my dad. And I am loving it. I am loving that he's still doing it and he's still got it. And then I'm there with him, and it doesn't make any sense to me that somehow this is fixing our relationship. And I realize I don't have to beat my dad. I just need to be here where my dad is at his best. Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. 
The stories on today's show were told by Bradford Jordan and Paul Normandon. You can find more of Bradford's stories at bradfordjordan.com, and Paul produces a monthly storytelling show in Austin, Texas, called Testify, and he teaches storytelling with Merlin Works. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Incidental music is from Blue Dot Sessions. If you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between episodes of Family Ghosts, and you like the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, check out Fisher Family Ghosts, our first-ever Family Ghosts spinoff. Each week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under and talk about the ways the characters, themes, and narrative affect our perspective on storytelling and our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. And once again, if you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It takes less than 30 seconds, and it makes a huge difference in terms of helping new listeners find our show. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.